In November 1558, when Queen Mary died, the Church of England was in a crisis. Thirty-five years earlier, Henry VIII, as you will recall from world history, that was Mary's father, he refused to accept the Pope's authority, and Parliament, following his lead, passed legislation making it clear that the English monarch alone was the supreme head of the church in his realm. When Henry died and his nine-year-old son Edward took the throne, Protestant leaders carried out more reforms in his name, stripping the church of many of those Catholic practices that his father had allowed to persist. But then six years later, Edward became sick and died, clearing the way for his older and faithfully Catholic half-sister Mary to become queen. Mary undid virtually all of the reforms that had been put into place by her father and her brother, including that act of parliament that had made the monarch the supreme head of the church. But five years later, Mary died. And this time, her half-sister Elizabeth ascended to the throne, and she and her Protestant allies began the work of reestablishing a church in England that was separate from the church in Rome. But this time, the reformers had to act a little more gently, because the nation was tired of flipping back and forth between Catholic and Protestant rulers, but also because Elizabeth was a woman. One of the first acts passed by her parliament was a new act of supremacy modeled after the one her father had pushed through and which her half-sister had repealed. But in this version, Elizabeth's version, instead of calling the monarch the supreme head of the church, which was a title that upset both pope-loving Catholics and women skeptical Protestants, parliament identified the monarch as the supreme governor, of the Church of England, and it has been the same ever since. A rose by any other name might smell as sweet, but how can a woman fulfill her destiny as the leader of her people if they will not call her by her proper title? Deborah, whose leadership we read about in today's lesson from Judges, would like a word. The short passage we heard a minute or two ago is the only time in our three-year lectionary cycle that we hear anything from the book of Judges, so we'd better make our best of it. You might even want to open your bulletin back to page five and follow along. At the beginning of the second paragraph of our reading, you might have noticed that Deborah is identified first as a prophetess and then as the wife of Lapidoth. Now, some more recent translations of the Bible take the gender-specific suffix out of that first title and identify Deborah as the full prophet that she was, but almost all translations continue to label her as Lapidoth's wife. But several scholars, including recent Tippy speaker Will Gaffney, note that the Hebrew, which literally means woman of Lapidoth or woman of torches, just as likely means fiery woman as it does Lapidoth's wife. And that since most prophets, in fact, all but one prophet in the Bible, remained single, 
The attempt to define Deborah by a husband's name is probably an overreach by those who are not accustomed to strong, independent women exercising authority. But even more remarkable in the next sentence is how the author of Judges goes out of his way to describe how Deborah judged Israel without actually calling her a judge. Now, at this time in their history, as the name of the book of the Bible implies, God's people were ruled by judges. Kings comes later. Judge was a pre-monarchical title that obscured the fact that these leaders, Deborah and many others, were less likely to rule on matters of law and more likely to lead an army into battle. In fact, among all the judges mentioned in the book of Judges, Deborah is the only one who is said to have listened to disputes among her people. As Robert Alter notes, a better title for these leaders of Israel would probably be chieftains. But book of chieftains doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Perhaps the reason the author of Judges refuses to give Deborah her proper title is because, as a woman, the author assumed that she would be less likely to ride out into battle among her people. But if we expand today's reading by just a few verses, we discover that that wasn't the case either. At the end of that reading in your bulletin, we hear Deborah order her general, Barak, to lead 10,000 troops to Mount Tabor, where they will fight against Sisera and Jabin's army. That's where our reading ends. But in the very next verse, we hear Barak's uncertain response. If you will go with me, he said to Deborah, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. It sounds like Barak thought about the 900 chariots of iron waiting for him and thought twice about going. Or maybe Barak was simply unable to trust a command given to him by a woman. But Deborah wasn't about to let his cowardice stand in the way of God's plan being fulfilled. So she replied, oh, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So off they set. And after Deborah and Barak and the 10,000 troops had reached Mount Tabor, Deborah looked over the field, and when she decided that the time to attack was correct, she ordered Barak to lead his troops into the Wadi Kishon. Up, she commanded her general, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Deborah's military insights proved effective. In the ensuing battle, God's people routed their enemies, and amidst the chaotic fighting, Sisera, the enemy commander, got down from his chariot of iron and ran away on foot. Barak chased him. But as Sisera approached the tent of one of his allies, a woman named Jael saw him, and she encouraged him to seek refuge inside. Sisera was parched from the fighting, and he asked his host to give her some water. But Jael went a step further, offering a mothering touch, giving him a skin of milk instead of a cup of water. Stand at the entrance of the tent, Sisera told his host, and if a man comes and asks you if a man is hiding here, tell him no. Then Jael, after wrapping the general up in a rug, tiptoed to the great warrior, 
took a tent peg and a hammer in her hands and drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, killing him where he lay. When Barak finally showed up, the deed was done. And Jael said to him with no small dose of irony, Come and I will show you the man whom you seek. No glory came to Barak that day. It belonged to the women whom God had used to deliver God's people just as Deborah had prophesied. Sometimes God gives us gifts that God's people don't want us to use. Sometimes God bestows talents upon individuals whom society refuses to let use them. Sometimes people who have been given the authority to speak for God will tell you that you had better bury your gift in the ground or else you will be rejected for daring to show it. But they are the ones whom God has rejected because God will never give you a gift that you are not supposed to use to the glory of God. You are the light of the world, Jesus tells us. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father which is in heaven. You are the light of the world. In every generation, God uses those who have been overlooked by the powerful and the mighty to become vessels for God's work in the world. It is always those who work outside the power structures of society through whom victory comes to God's people. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know that there is no force strong enough to defeat us or to hold us back. Nothing can overshadow God's glory shining through us. As disciples of Jesus, we are called not only to use our gifts for God's transformation of the world, but we are also called to celebrate those people among us whose gifts are buried out of fear. We must encourage those who have been told that their gifts are not welcome. We must encourage them to let their lights shine so that others may see how God is at work all around us. We must tell those who have buried their talents that they have no reason to fear because God's gifts always belong where people can see them. Jesus teaches us to watch for the reign of God wherever it might be hidden. That's what it means to give all we've got to the reign of God which is breaking through in this world. Surely that reign comes when all of God's children are able to use the gifts that they have given to the glory of God. Thanks be to God.